Whether we are conscious of it or not, every one of us carries a belief system that is our default to make sense of this world. It may be shaped by tradition, handed down by parents. It may be shaped by friends, educators, or mentors, whether in person or on the screen. It may be influenced by trauma. It may be carefully thought out, logical and, and consistent. It may be illogical, a smorgasbord of conflicting ideas, but held to as truth nonetheless. Regardless of what kind it is, you have one. The Bible was written to help you see the world from its perspective, and it invites you to embrace it as your own. Its opening chapters were originally written to help God's people live a specific way that leads to flourishing in the midst of competing cultures and belief systems. Its invitation comes largely through story, and, and its beginning, Genesis, answers the most fundamental questions about God and humanity in a cohesive way. Importantly, it shows us what the world and we are made for, what was right from the start, how it has gone wrong, and the one way God made for it to be fixed. It makes a compelling story, not only for understanding the world, but as we'll see today, living in it with hope. And we could all use a little hope right now. Today's message is the last in the series. To recap so far, God exists. Genesis makes no explanation for this, but shows us what kind of God he is. He makes a beautiful, good, orderly world and creates humanity as the pinnacle of creation. Humanity is made in God's image to rule under God's authority for the good of the earth. And God gives the first man, Adam, a garden to work and to keep. And he is to grow his family and to expand the garden, to create culture and a world wherein God is glorified. But in temptation, he fails to carry out his task. And in a role reversal, a serpent creature that Adam was to rule over entices Adam and his wife Eve to do what the serpent wanted, but the one thing God had prohibited to eat from the knowledge, and more rightly understood as the experience of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This disobedience against God, defined as sin, triggers an abrupt change. For the worse, a change in relationship with God and each other. For the worse, a, a change in being, a loss of innocence. And for the worse, a, a change in location, banned from the garden and God's presence in that temple-like environment. The serpent is cursed, and in so many ways, Adam and his descendants will live in a world which was not meant to be. And that's the world we find ourselves in today. There is good, but also evil, and it's a mixture. Created for so much more, for so much better, and yearning for that. But in the present, we experience so much less. Our world has been dented. But God has a plan to fix it. And today we finish our series with this, a seed of hope. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As God curses the serpent for his part to play in the temptation, these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. While Genesis gives us little information about the serpent, further writers along in the biblical story do. And today we are going to take the story right to its end. Whereas recorded in the scripture, the last author, John, makes this allusion in the book of Revelation, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And that being the case, many see Genesis 3.15 as a whisper of God's plan of redemption. That is the fixing of the problem. The serpent as a symbol of sin, death, and evil will be at odds with the offspring or literally the seed of Eve, causing him harm, but the serpent will itself be crushed. 
in the book, The Big Story. Theologians call this the proto-evangel, the first gospel. From the line of the woman will come a descendant who will crush the serpent. Adam and Eve will go on. They will bear progeny, children, and one of these will defeat and abolish this devil and all evil along with it. The rest of the Bible is the search for the serpent crusher, and throughout its pages, Satan does all he can to prevent him from coming. There's another kind of glimpse of what it will take to fix the problem Adam's plunged the world into. Again, in Genesis 3, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The creation of animal skins requires that blood must be shed so that man's nakedness and shame can be covered over, a seed of promise, bloodshed as an act of grace. As we've briefly seen before, you start to follow a story from its promising start, creation, through its devastating event, fall, as some label these, you cannot help but see how desperately the world needs a further event, a, a rescue, or to use a more theological term, redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. The first family experiences a murder. Adam's son, Cain, kills brother Abel. And from there, evil and violence spirals. Just a couple of chapters later in Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So God decides to do a redo with one family that in the midst of all the evil does what is right and finds favor in God's sight. And you probably know the story of Noah and the flood and the rainbow. Sadly, the redo project doesn't take, but God doesn't give up. He then calls a man named Abram or Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham will become a great nation and God's plan will flow through him and his seed. Abraham and his descendants called Israel will be blessed to be a blessing. Now God makes a commitment to them in what is called a covenant. He prescribes to them a meeting place, a temple, and gives them a code of conduct whereby they can relate to God. This law was an act of grace by God. Just as radioactive material has to be approached ever so carefully lest you suffer irreparable damage, so a holy God can only be approached by the careful manner he prescribes. Reflecting on their position, scripture says this, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And, and the promises to them are amazing and the promise of it all is so good. But, but as you continue in the story and turn the pages from Genesis to Exodus to Deuteronomy, etc., etc., through the Old Testament, there is this repeated pattern of failure in relationship to God. Israel fails to keep its commitments. It cannot obey the law of God, and it consistently embraces other gods committing spiritual adultery. A significant part of the Old Testament are the words of the prophets, and this was grace from God confronting them with their sin, warning them of pending discipline and or judgment, calling them back to God. Jeremiah. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? 
but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It is rather easy to sit in judgment over Israel, but only with a blind eye, totally lacking self-awareness. We, we all have particular areas of weakness where, although we know what the right thing to do is, we often fail to perform it. What is that for you? Try as we might, our self-discipline and our self-effort cannot get us to consistent obedience to what God wants, and yet that is what we are called to do. And our affections, they are, they are also prone to wander, making lesser things more important than God who created us for a relationship of fidelity with him. We are not all that unlike Israel. To quote a familiar verse in the New Testament, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law, a set of rules only makes it more obvious. It leads us to that place where we are ready to admit we need a solution beyond ourselves. And those who try the hardest to be good know their need the most. Like, you don't know the strength of the wind until you resist it. So only those who make an attempt to resist temptation and the pull of their desires contrary to God know how powerful sin really is. So C.S. Lewis says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Israel needed, we need, a rescue from our sin. The magnitude of the problem is made clear by the magnitude of its solution. Look what it took for God to set the solution in motion, not only to fix the world, but you and me. God had to become man, accomplishing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus became one of us, and though he was tempted, including a desert showdown with the devil, he lived a sinless life which qualified him and him alone to be a sin offering for us all. And so Jesus allowed himself to be crucified. The, the scriptures tell us this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is just as the prophets predicted. Isaiah says this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Jesus' contemporary John, when he saw Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I remember being part of a theological conversation at a conference about what all happened when Jesus died on the cross. And a particular contention was whether God poured out his wrath on his son as he was crucified. And different opinions were being expressed and someone said, does it really matter? Like, all I need to know is that my sins are forgiven. And as I reflected on that, I think it does matter. As an example, it would be one thing for a college student to know that his dad paid for his tuition and, and I'd hope he'd be grateful for that. But think of the difference if the student was to find out that his dad paid for his education by getting another job, moonlighting at night, radically simplifying his lifestyle to cut expenses, meals without meat, seldom going out for entertainment, selling his golf clubs and other prized possessions just so he could pay for his son's college education. K. 
you think it would make a difference to the son, his love for his father, the way that he lives his life as a student, and how he values the opportunity he has been given? He, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. The tragedy is when we hear that as casually as an announcement of rain on a West Coast day. The story I'm telling you today is called the gospel. The word means good news, and it's good news because of the magnitude of the solution to the magnitude of the problem we had no capacity to fix. We needed a rescue, and God gave it through his son. Jesus died on a cross, chastised for our sins, rose from the dead, and is exalted to the right hand of the Father. Listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 1 as it speaks about this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Remember how Adam was created in God's image to rule and have dominion and fill the earth? Now, when you hear these words written by Paul to the church in Ephesus, you are meant to hear the echoes of the creation account as it speaks of exactly those things being accomplished in Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God didn't just rescue us. He has started a reclamation project made possible by Jesus who makes us new creations in Christ, bearing his image to fill the earth. We began with creation, fall, redemption, and this leads to a restoration which culminates in the future but is to begin in us now. We once again have free access to the presence of God. We are literally made to be his meeting place, the temple of the Holy Spirit, poured out on all believers in the New Testament. The Spirit empowers us to live in a way we cannot on our own. And by his Spirit, God's rule is put on display in the way that we live our lives under his authority, partnering with him so that as Adam was to expand the garden, we expand the places where God is glorified. From the testimony of our faith to the testimony of the way that we work at our jobs, run our businesses, serve in our communities, all of life is to become worship, a continuous signpost, 168 hours of the week to the reality that Jesus is above all, that the kingdom of God is here, and Jesus is Lord. And in God's wisdom, that is supremely demonstrated, not just how we live our lives individually, but how we do it together in what Jesus called the church. The New Testament of the Bible begins with four gospels recounting from different perspectives the life of Jesus. The next book is the book of Acts, which recounts the birth of the church and how God worked through the church by his Holy Spirit. And following that are mostly a number of letters from God's apostles written to his church, not just individuals, 
explaining the faith, addressing problems, encouraging them to live, especially in the light of the fullness of the kingdom of God that we experience in part, but which is yet to come. Jesus has been victorious. He not only dealt with sin, he has crushed the serpent's head as he came to destroy the works of the devil and disarm the rulers and authorities and destroy the one who has the power of death. And yet, we still find ourselves in the day to mixture where there is good and evil. We still have to stand against the schemes of the devil in our day-to-day -day battle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. One of the best ways to understand our struggle with evil in relationship to Christ's victory already accomplished is the analogy of World War II's D-Day and V-Day. When the Allied forces won the battle at Normandy, this victory that began on June 6, 1944, D-Day, meant the inevitable end for the German army. It, like, it was over. However, it took another year, which included continued fighting, before the Germans surrendered on what is known as D-Day. Jesus has conquered Satan, sin, and death. He has dealt the fatal blow at the cross, D-Day. And it's only a matter of time till all of that is fully carried out, V-Day. The cross and the resurrection assures us that the seed of hope is won. And as we live in the in-between times, we can do so with great hope until Jesus returns and fully implements his kingdom. The history of the New Testament Christianity is often one of struggle, difficulty, and persecution, but our future is so bright, nothing, nothing can quench the flame of hope we carry. And so the great follower of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, who for his faith has been imprisoned numerous times, five times been whipped with 39 lashes that would like leave you ripped apart and close to dead, three times beaten with rods, once pelted with rocks, and, and literally left for dead. And because of his faith, sleepless at times, hungry, thirsty, yet because of this great hope, he can refer to his experience this way. For this light, and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So also the Apostle Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's coming! In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I don't know where today finds you. What, if any struggle you may be going through, how difficult life may seem to you right now. I mean, collectively, collectively, we have experienced a lot of challenges in our recent days. And if it's hard, it's hard. God never minimizes our pain. He entered into it. And he did so in a way that can hardly, we can hardly grasp. And he has come out the other side, now offering us a hope that can't be swept away by floodwaters or sickness or even death itself at creation. 
God had a plan for humanity in our world. It got derailed. We call that the fall. He came to fix it, redemption. And in the end, he will make all things right, restoration. This hope can carry you, and it can become bigger than your present difficulties, as hard as those may be. The last book in the Bible spells out to us more than any other how the story of God culminates in hope for those who put their trust in Jesus. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The start of the story began with creation. The story ends at this point with recreation. At the start, God creates heaven and earth. Here God creates a new heaven and earth in which we will live with new resurrected bodies. And just like our new bodies will have continuity and discontinuity with the previous, so, so it will be for the earth that is to come. John Mark Homer says in his book, Garden City, contrary to the popular saying, heaven is not our home, earth is. Not earth as it is now, but earth as it will be in the future. Our hope isn't for another place, but for another time. This isn't about God scrapping the earth and starting over. This is about God stripping it down to the studs, clearing out all the junk and grit and grime and making it new again. And the disorder that sin virus throughout the ages will be done away with. And what matters most? A restored relationship with God will be front and center. Jerusalem was the city wherein was the temple, the place to meet with God. She descends from heaven. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man as heaven merges with earth. God's presence was formerly limited to Israel's temple but began to expand through the church and will eventually fill the entire new heavens and earth. At that time, the eschatological or end time goal of the sanctuary of Eden filling the entire creation will be fulfilled. God's purposes from the beginning are fulfilled at the end of time. And so you see this contrast in the last chapters between the original Eden and what God has ahead for us in our future. A river, a tree of life, the removal of the curse, the concept of reigning with God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is a story of great hope, revealing a God of relentless love who has a masterful plan for us. Let that sink in today. Let its truth rise above all the difficulty you might be experiencing so that you can live differently in hope. This is also a story which requires response. The scriptures ask you to believe it and make it your own. Come and let the one who is thirsty come. 
Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Oh, you can reject this. And in the story, those who do reflect that in their actions. And they are found outside, banned like Adam was from the glorious presence of God. But that is not what God wants for you. Come. You are invited daily to believe in God, walk with him. To do so is for God's story to become the dominant story of your life that shapes how you think, feel, how you act, and leads you to life and an indestructible hope. Once again, as it was right from the start, there is the choice before us. And every day, the way that we live delivers our answer. I leave you with this question today. What does it look like for me to live like this story is true?